If you are remaining, I'd encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 is our text this morning. As you're turning there, I don't know how many of you um, watched the news this week, but one of the things that made news this week is the fact that the CEO of Instagram uh, was brought before a Senate panel, and he was brought before, I forget his name, but he was brought before a Senate panel to talk about the effects that social media has uh, on young people, on children, really on everybody in their mental health. Uh, he's not the first CEO of a social media company to come before a Senate panel. This seems to be a thing that's happening in regularity over uh, the past couple weeks. Uh, but it made me think about social media for a little bit. I'm not really big into social media at all. Um, but like many of you, I signed up for Facebook probably 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, when it comes to Instagram, I've been a very late adopter to Instagram. And I can remember when it first came out and everybody was getting Instagram, I, I was asking people about it. And they said, well, Instagram is just pictures. And I said, well, that seems weird. Maybe that's because I was used to Facebook where you would uh, put a text or um, uh, content on there. This is how I'm feeling or this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm proud of. But when it came to Instagram, I was like, it's just pictures. That's all it is. And uh, what my kids tell me is that's a sign that I'm middle-aged. And uh, everybody who is on Facebook is just middle-aged now, but everybody in the world is on Instagram. I thought about that this week as we come to the book of Isaiah, because when it comes to Instagram, it's just pictures. But when you come to the book of Isaiah, what you discover is there's a lot of pictures here. Maybe Instagram is on to something. Maybe it recognizes that images connect with us sometimes in ways that words or text or fact just doesn't. And so as you come to the book of Isaiah, you see all of these images all over there. And that's important uh, when we come and study the book as we think about the images of the Messiah that it presents to us. That's what uh, Isaiah does. It doesn't give us a whole lot of facts about the Messiah. It doesn't give us a whole lot of figures or details, but gives us all of these pictures and all of these images of what the Messiah is going to be like. If you were here with us two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, and it talked about light that broke into darkness. It talked about all the joy that came from a plentiful harvest. If you were with us last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 11, and the images are uh, wild in Isaiah chapter 11. Talked about life that was coming from stumps. So we imagine a, a huge forest that's been cut down and how there are stumps all over as far as the eye can see. But then we see life coming from each one of these stumps. But we also saw this, what I call a, a counterintuitive image. A counterintuitive image of a lamb napping beside a wolf. We just read it again earlier in the service of a child playing over the hole of a cobra. Now, the point of all these images is to communicate, to communicate to us what this Messiah is going to look like. He's going to come as a child, and yet the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will come to establish perfect justice and perfect peace. And so as you go through the book of Isaiah, you'll see that these images just get stronger and stronger and stronger. And that is true of our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 42. I'm only going to read verses 1 to 13, but just as I read them, let the images grip your heart. Let them capture your imagination as it talks about this great Messiah who is coming. So Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 13. 
Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This is God's word. Father, be with us now as we look at your word. Uh, what an amazing book that we, get, we are given in the book of Isaiah, full of all these images that capture our hearts and our imagination. So I pray, Father, that you would speak to us, speak to all of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, through your living word, Father. You promised to work through it to change our hearts, so we pray that that would happen here this morning, that as we meditate on you and your greatness and on your word, we would leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So our passage this morning is one of the first of what's called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The whole second half of this book has several of these uh, servant songs scattered throughout, and this is really one of the first ones that we've come to. If you've been with us, you'll know that this book of Isaiah was important in the moment that it was written because it was a very troubled time in the history of God's people. There was all sorts of pressures happening from within uh, the community of God's people. There was all sorts of outside pressure that was happening as well. So there was a, a lot that was going on when these words were written. And by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 42, the pressure has really built. It's, it's built to a fever pitch. And that's because at this moment, the northern kingdom likely has been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And so that northern half of God's people are now uh, enslaved, exiled by a foreign nation. Because of that, Judah, where uh, Isaiah is, 
Judah in Jerusalem, that invading army is only eight miles away. So God's people are feeling the pressure from this uh, invading army. And to make matters worse, Isaiah starts talking and prophesying about the fact that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better. And he starts talking about these other nations, the Babylonians and the Persians, and he says that they are going to come and they are going to bring judgment and condemnation upon God's people, that they are going to be an instrument in the hands of God to grab their attention and to grab their hearts. And so it really feels like the longer you read through the book, if if you think about it as like a volume dial, the volume dial on this discussion of God's condemnation is getting turned higher and higher and higher. But just as that dial is being turned, the words of comfort and consolation, the words of hope, the volume on those words and those images is getting turned up as well. And this particular servant song comes in the midst of all that. And what it does is it tells us about Jesus. It tells us about the character of Jesus, our Messiah, the servant of God, who's going to come in weakness and humility, but also in power and in glory. Years ago, um, you all know I'm fans of Eugene Peterson. Years ago, I read, I don't even remember what book it's from, but a chapter in one of his books that talked about the character of God that really helped, really helped me think about and reshape the way even I think about the character of God. And he talked about you can sum God up in really two words. God is transcendent and he is intimate. God's transcendent and he is intimate. And I think both of those character points are made really clear in our passage this morning. God is transcendent and he's intimate. But at the end, in verse 10, it tells you what to do in response to that. It tells us that our response is one of worship. So let's start by looking at verse 5 where it talks about the transcendence of God. Really, it's all throughout, but this verse really nails it. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So this chapter happens in, the lar- in a larger section of Isaiah that really deals with the nature of idolatry. And that was a problem for God's people during Isaiah's time, worshiping foreign idols, um, giving themselves to idolatry. And Isaiah, Isaiah sort of presents the question to them, why worship idols? Why worship these fake wooden objects? Why worship the gods of other nations that really carry no power whatsoever to change? So what Isaiah says or reminds them is that our God is is a God of transcendent power. They are unable to do anything. Your God is able. He is of transcendent. He is powerful. He is a mighty man of war. So essentially, Isaiah is saying things are going to get really bad. They're going to get really, really bad. They're about to get a whole lot worse than they are even now. And so when those things happen, don't trust in the idols to save you. Instead, trust in this mighty man of war, this transcendent God whom we serve. And Isaiah continues to remind them that this mighty God is going to bring about perfect 
justice, perfect justice. We talked a good bit about that this week, and it's just a reminder that this idea of justice is a common theme all throughout the book of Isaiah. If you were with us last week, we talked about how uh, we will always deal with an imperfect justice until God comes again to establish perfect justice. And we deal with imperfect justice day in and day out, and it sort of makes sense. We deal with that imperfection because we can't understand people's hearts and we can't understand other people's minds. Uh, We live in a world that's been polluted and corrupted by sin, and so when it comes to justice, often all we can go on is what our eyes see and what our ears hear. And so because of that, our justice will always be imperfect. We talked about that last week, and as if on cue... Two days later, the New York Times, uh, I think on the front page, at least of their website, I don't know if it was in their newspaper, uh, talked about this idea of imperfect justice. They published an article that was called A Terrible Catch-22 that asked the question, should wrongly convicted people falsely admit guilt in order to win parole? And of course, it caught my eye because of what we had just spoken about uh, last Sunday. And so I read the article and it told the story about uh, two men with the last names Clark and Hardin. And it said this about these two men. It said a jailhouse informant made up a story about one of them confessing. The police did not pursue a lead involving an actual confession to the murder. A dishonest detective fabricated evidence testifying against these two men And the prosecutor misled the jury about a fingerprint and a hair sample at the crime scene. Imperfect justice, right? Well, 20 years later, the Innocence Project comes in and exonerates these two men, uh, citing all of this evidence of why they should be exonerated. But the judge decided to retry the case. Why? Because the men had falsely admitted to their crime only in order to win parole. It was a terrible catch-22 that highlights how we live with so much injustice in our world, day in and day out, in both big ways and in small ways. But think about that in light of our passage, because when it comes to justice and injustice, those things do not apply to this God, to our Savior, to this servant of God, not this Messiah. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This God will establish justice once and for all. But we even talked about last week how this justice is bigger and more wider spread than we realize It isn't just correctly judging court cases or making the right decisions. It's bigger than all that. This Messiah comes to bring a justice that is about the right ordering of society. It's about fixing everything that has gone wrong in our world. And it is exactly what our hearts most long for. I was reminded of that very personally this week. I forget which day it was this week, but we received a text from uh, one of our kids, um, and they they said that their school had just been put on lockdown because of some threat that was happening outside the school. And so one of our children was texting us, hiding in the corner of a classroom for fear that someone might be entering their class 
to shoot them up. And the teachers were scared, the kids were scared, and all this was happening uh, in very real time. This was at a school just a half mile from where we are right now. Now, I will be the first to confess that I've grown, I've, I personally have grown uh, very numb to the news of school shootings. It feels like it just is in the news every other week. But then when you get a text from your own child facing that reality in real time, in a real situation, just a half mile away from us, those things become very, very real to a parent and to anybody who's involved. And I left feeling how long? That's a question I kept, I kept feeling. How long are we going to have to deal with this stuff? Anybody who watches these school shootings, you're asking the same question. How long are we going to have to deal with this stuff? How long are we going to have to deal with the realities of sin and sadness and injustice in our world that we deal with every day? How long are we going to have to watch the news that seems dominated by stories of school shootings or stories of homicide rates How long are we going to have to deal with all these things? And then we come to Isaiah, and he reminds us that Jesus is coming. That Jesus is coming, and he will come in strength, in power, in might. He will come to execute justice. He will come to make right everything that has gone wrong in our world. Like what Marcia read, Operation No more tears. Jesus is coming. He's coming as a mighty man of war, and he's going to come to fulfill all of our longings for justice, all of our longings for flourishing and well-being, all of our longings for shalom and peace. He is coming, and he will establish all of those things. This servant of God is transcendent, he's powerful, he's mighty, and he's greater than all of our minds can comprehend. And when you think about it, this is sort of what we expect from God. It's certainly what we expect from kings. Kings, every image we have of a king is mighty and powerful. We're used to thinking about kings coming and exercising rule and power with all of their might and all of their strength. And so we get that picture here in Isaiah. But the next picture we get of this servant of God is one that's unexpected. And that picture is, is, yes, God is transcendent, but he's also intimate. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. We obviously live in a city um, that has all sorts of problems, and many of you are well aware of the problems. We, we deal with them day in and day out on a personal level. We watch the news. We see the problems. And uh, many of us uh, view the problems and say, hey, I want to do something about it. I, wanna, I, I can't just listen to this stuff and not do something about it. I want to do something about it. And I can remember a couple of years ago, I, I was in that place, and I said, there's so much going wrong in the sea. I want to do something about it. So I decided that, well, let me, let me try to find a place to volunteer. And so for about three years, every Wednesday afternoon, I volunteered at a rec center in a, in a high-risk, sort of low-income, under-resourced area. And uh, every Wednesday, I'd go and spend a couple hours. I'd, I'd try to help tutor kids. Um, I would, we'd play games. We'd deal with snacks. Uh, we'd hang out. We'd spend some time with one another. Um, it, was, it, was, it was hard work. 
Uh, It was rewarding to some degree, but it was really hard work, and I was exhausted every time I got home. And so after three years of doing this, I started to really reflect back on what it was like over those three years and and that experience. And it was hard to reflect back on it, because over those three years, that rec center had four different directors. Each one of them left in in a flurry because they were just absolutely burnt out by day-in and day-out work at this rec center. The rec center had constant trouble allocating the funds that were very generous. They had lots of money. They were well-funded, but they had a hard time allocating those funds to best benefit the kids in the program. Not to mention the school conditions that these kids were learning in, that they were coming to the rec center every day afterwards. Not to mention the homes that they came from, just one horrible story after another of drug addiction, fathers in jail, brothers had been gunned down in the streets of Baltimore. It was tough stuff. In fact, my wife came a couple times. She couldn't leave without crying each week uh, because it was so difficult and so sad. Now, after reflecting about that over the couple of years, I came to the conclusion that it was absolutely very good for me to go and to do that to commit my time to those kids, to get to know those kids, to love them well. That was very important. It was a good thing that I did. But I sort of came to the conclusion that unless the systems that were around these children were not fixed, that their trajectory in life would continue to be a bad one, and they would continue to go down that road. So the question I kind of wrestled with, was my time there on a very small scale valuable? And I came to the conclusion, yes, it was valuable. But do systems need to change on a larger scale? And the answer to that question is yes as well. The truth is, it's both. We need to love on a small scale, and the systems on a large scale need to change as well. Both is needed. Now, here's what's beautiful about our passage. This king brings both. This king brings both. He brings justice on a large scale, but he also intimately brings healing and redemption on a very personal, a very intimate, and a very relational scale as well. Jesus came to break the systems of oppression, the systems of sin and death, but he also came to care deeply for the individual, to care deeply for you and for me. Let's just think about some examples. Think of Mary and Joseph, two teenagers, who for the rest of their lives would be accused of sin and scandal because Mary turned up pregnant because she was, before she was married. For the rest of their lives, they would be accused of sin and scandal, and yet their lives would forever be changed by the baby that was born to them lying in a manger. Think of the unnamed woman caught in adultery. Think of her being dragged half-naked into the street to be stoned to death, and yet think of the restoration and the healing that she received from Jesus. Think of the also unnamed woman at the well. She was at the well at noon because she wanted to hide from the rest of her friends, from the society and the culture that was around her, because that culture had rejected her and cast her aside, and yet Jesus spoke to her about the waters of life. You see, a bruised reed he will not break. Think of Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. Think of Jesus looking at that filthy, dreaded tax collector named Matthew. Think of Jesus saying to him, come 
and follow me. You see, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Think of Jesus, the transcendent God of the universe, patiently wiping and cleaning the feet of his disciples. I heard a quote this week that said, while men reach for thrones to build their kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. Think of the woman wiping Jesus' feet with her tears in a prison of her own regret and shame, and yet Jesus intimately welcomed her. He loved her, and he forgave her. Think of all the people, of all the people, the lame, the sick, the outcast, all the individual people who were personally touched deeply by Jesus while he was here on earth. Friends, this is the servant of God. He is the transcendent one, and he is the intimate one all at once. He came to bring healing to this world, but he also comes to bring healing to you and to me. He comes to forgive our sins. He wants to cast out all of our shame and regret. He wants to be with you, Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of your troubles and in your anxieties. He delights over you with singing. He is the transcendent one and he is the intimate one. And so if all this is true, if all that's true of this servant that Isaiah presents to us, then what should our response be to a God who's both transcendent and intimate? Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and the inhabitants. What's Isaiah saying? The only proper response is to worship. And what Isaiah does here is he's he's marshalling the choir of nature that's all around him. He's saying, let's all get together. Let's marshal the powers and the beauty of creation around us, calling out to all the world, let's gather together And worship this God who's both transcendent and intimate. And Isaiah calls us to do the very same thing. To worship this God with our lives. Think of the confession that says, what is the the chief end of man? What is the, the purpose that God has for each and every one of us? What's the job he gives us to do? Where are we most fulfilled? Where are we most human? Where are we most according to God's design for our lives? We are all of those things when we are worshiping him and enjoying him forever. That's what God calls us to do, to worship the transcendent one, to worship the intimate one, to worship this servant of God who's come to save us from our sins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.